Well, turn with me in your Bibles to Acts chapter 28. Acts 28. This morning we are nearing the end of our study of the book of Acts. We could have finished it today, but there's, because we've been in the book for so long and I feel like to do justice and sort of concluding, not like a recap, but sort of concluding the whole intention of why Luke even wrote this account in the first place to this man named Theophilus, um, we're going to have a concluding sort of study next week where we'll look at the last two verses of our chapter. But we're going to be looking today at Paul's journey to Rome, his witness in Rome. We're going to be kind of settled in Acts 28, verses 16 through 29. And for some brief context, in our study last week, we did cover the first 15 verses of chapter 28. We saw how Paul, after being shipwrecked and, and making it to Malta, capital of the chocolate Malta shakes. I went for it last week. I figured I might as well follow it up again one more time because this is the only time I'll be able to do it. We saw how he, he served others in whatever opportunities the Lord opened to him, whatever areas of need that he saw, regardless of what was going on in his own life in that, own, in that situation. We saw this in him helping getting a bonfire going to help you know, drive people off, keep people warm in that storm, the cold and the rain. We saw that in him being used by the Lord in those three winter months that they stayed on the island of Malta as the Lord worked miraculously through the Apostle Paul's life and likely through his two friends by healing all those who had diseases who came wanting to be healed. We also saw that as he served the Lord and others that that didn't mean everything went smoothly for him. This was clear in how he was bitten by a deadly poisonous snake as he was helping with getting wood on the fire, and then in how the native people of the island came to their own judgments about Paul, first in thinking that that obviously meant he was a murderer, he had done something wrong, and the goddess of justice wasn't going to let him live, and then switching their thinking and thinking he was a god because, well, he didn't drop dead, so obviously this guy is some sort of divine being because none of the rest of us have ever made it out of a snake bite like that before, so... But, but finally, we saw the last leg of travel that took place from Malta on to Italy, the sailing, and then in having to trek by foot once they got to uh, the, the port town of Pudioli, there on the, the northern uh, bay of Naples, but how Paul immediately got connected with other Christians once they landed in Italy, how Christians from Rome heard Paul was in Italy and traveled to, to meet him and welcome him and accompany him on that final bit of his uh, journey there on the, the Appian Way and how that reception, that fellowship caused Paul to thank God and take courage and just the beauty of the body of Christ and action there as Paul was making his way finally to Rome. But now we're going to see Paul arrive in Rome. We're going to see the reception he got from the Jews and the initial ministry and witnessing opportunity he, he's going to have in Rome with the Jewish leaders. And then, again, next week we're going to conclude our study of the book of Acts. But with all that, let's read verse 16 of 
Acts chapter 28. It says, Now when we came to Rome, the centurion delivered the prisoners to the captain of the guard, but Paul was permitted to dwell by himself with the soldier who guarded him. Just as we saw last week with all the 276 passengers being kept alive through the shipwreck, making it safely to land, that the the promise of God through His angel was fulfilled in that safe arrival. Here again, we see a promise being fulfilled in Paul coming to Rome. Jesus had told Paul over two years earlier that he must bear witness to Jesus in Rome. And then during that storm on the sea, Paul was told by an angel in the night that he must be brought, uh, brought before Caesar. And now the promise of Jesus is beginning to be fulfilled as Paul arrived in Rome, is going to continue to be fulfilled as he testifies about Jesus and ultimately will be fulfilled when Paul stands before Caesar Nero, and I think just a, a, I don't don't think we can be reminded of this too much, but these things are things that we need to take note of that when, when God makes a promise, He always makes good on His promise. There's never a time when He ever fails. We don't see Paul drowning in the ocean after he said that he was going to make it to Rome. Well, I guess you know, God just couldn't do it. Like, no, He got him there. He did it. In spite of the shipwreck, in spite of the deadly venomous snake bite, like God did it. And if He had to move miraculously in order to make His promise be fulfilled, He did it. And He does those sorts of things in our lives all the time. Sometimes the miraculous just seems very natural to us. And yet it's, it's very much God working in ways that only God could work. He does it. And he did it with Paul. Now, the, the centurion Julius, we see here, had fulfilled his mission. He had brought all the prisoners to Rome and delivered them to the captain of the guard But we see that some sort of an exception was made for Paul as he was permitted to dwell by himself, which as we see, or are going to see in verse 30, was his own rented house where he would be chained to a Roman soldier in shifts every single day. I don't know exactly what the time frame looked like, but Likely two to three times a day, a new soldier would come and change out with the olds, unshackle Paul and shackle themselves to, a, to, to Paul, a new soldier there, and shifts constantly, never a moment of being alone, never a moment of just being able to have my own time. Like Paul always had a soldier there with him that he was chained to. So while he definitely had some freedom in his house arrest situation, he was still very much a prisoner during this two-year period of time. 
But, but I want us to see that everything throughout the rest of this chapter, all that happened in the two years Paul was first imprisoned in Rome took place in a home, in a, in a rented home, in fact. He didn't own it. He probably had to rely on the generosity of others to afford it since he couldn't work as a tent maker during this time. But regardless, he took advantage of this house as a hub for ministry to happen, for the gospel to go forth, and for discipleship to happen in person and through his letter writing to churches and individuals. Paul embraced this house ministry, and God used it powerfully. God used it. He honored it. Check out what Paul wrote to the Philippian believers during his time on house arrest. He said this in Philippians chapter 1, verses 12 and 13. He said, but I want you to know, brethren, that the things which happened to me have actually turned out for the furtherance of the gospel so that it has become evident to the whole palace guard and to all the rest that my chains are in Christ. Paul had a, had a captive audience to share the gospel with each guard, each soldier who was chained to him. And with all who came to him during those two years, to where it became evident even to the soldiers, even to the whole palace guard, that Paul's chains were in Christ, that Jesus was the one who wanted Paul there as a prisoner, that Jesus had a purpose in Paul's imprisonment. And that just speaks volumes to the way that God used Paul's ministry in this home as he was chained to soldiers. You and I, if we were in Paul's shoes, might get just frustrated. Like, man, I got to like, it's not bad enough that I got to have these shackles on every single day, but I'm shackled to somebody else. And yet Paul just saw, this person stuck with me. Paul didn't think, I'm stuck with the soldier. He's like, this, this dude's stuck with me. Each of these dudes are stuck with me. Each of these men have to listen to me. I get to share the gospel with every single guard who's chained to me every single day for two whole years. I don't know what was happening on the palace guard end. Like, were they like, oh man, like every time I go there, he talks to me about this Jesus guy. But eventually the, the word was, we, we get something about Paul. Paul's not a prisoner of Rome. He's a prisoner, actually, of Jesus. It's Jesus who has him here. And maybe for some, they, they thought, no, actually, Jesus brought Paul here for me. Because now I'm saved because of being chained to this man. Perspective's huge, isn't it? Listen, family, we, we can't despise, think little of, or be blind to the ministry opportunities God has already given us in our home, or, or that he wants to have takes, 
take place in or around each of our homes. The example of Paul here would teach us that we don't need a big home or even a nice home. We don't even necessarily have to own the home for God to do big things and to move in big ways. No, we just need an open door, an open heart to people, to be hospitable, to welcome people in, and to be yielded to the work of God's Spirit in, in whatever it is that He wants to do in and through our lives and in and through our homes, whether we are single or married, have kids or don't have kids, whether we live in a home or live in an apartment or we're just renting a room. There is ministry all throughout the New Testament that you know where it took place? In a home, around a meal, out in nature, by a lake, on a walk, and God can use the smallest, most normal things for powerful ministry to take place, but we just have to be looking. We've got to be open. We've got to see what God's doing and who's God, who God's brought around us and put in our lives. And, and oftentimes, it's just, it's our own family. It's the people in our house. It's a roommate. It's a neighbor next door. Paul was chained to a guard, but his love for others, his, his passion to see lost people saved, and his desire to see saved people built up and equipped in Jesus was not chained. It was, it was not restricted. And regardless of his circumstances, God was going to use Paul here in a powerful way. But, so let's continue on into verses 17 through 20, where we see this first initial meeting that Paul had with the Jewish leaders Verse 17 says, And it came to pass after three days that Paul called the leaders of the Jews together. So when they had come together, he said to them, Men and brethren, though I have done nothing against our people or the customs of our fathers, yet I was delivered as a prisoner from Jerusalem into the hands of the Romans, who, when they had examined me, wanted to let me go because there was no cause for putting me to death. But when the Jews spoke against it, I was compelled to appeal to Caesar, not that I had anything of which to accuse my nation. For this reason, therefore, I have called for you to see you and speak with you, because for the hope of Israel, I am bound with this chain. So, after Paul was placed in this home where his house arrest would take place, and, and after probably figuring out what kind of freedoms that he uh, was being given in this new situation. After three days, he called for the prominent and influential Jews, probably many who were synagogue leaders in the city of Rome, to, to come to his home to meet with him, and, and, and they did. And as Paul shares with them initially, we see that, you know, he, he doesn't really know. He's trying to feel out where they're at. What have they heard about him? You know, what kind of correspondence has happened did they hear, hey, this really terrible guy is coming? <laughs> you know, he, so he's, he just kind of lays out sort of a, a defense of himself. He tries to maybe clear up any potential false information they had heard or any biases that they might have had about him. And we see that he does this by first stating his innocence. He, 
hadn't done anything against the Jewish people. And I love it that he says, our people. He's like, I'm a Jew too. These are my people. I don't, I'm not against them. But still, he was arrested and delivered as a prisoner from Jerusalem into the hands of the Romans. He, he shares that he was examined by the Romans and that they wanted to let him go because there wasn't any reason for him to be put to death. And in fact, when we look back at some of the accounts that we've already gone through, multiple times we see Roman officials declaring Paul's innocence. But once the Jewish religious leaders spoke against his innocence, that final time before the governor Festus, where they wanted him to be killed, he felt compelled to appeal, to stand before Caesar in judgment. But that even with the Jewish religious leaders not accepting Paul's innocence, Paul goes, look, I don't have any desire to accuse my nation. He wasn't against the Jewish nation. He wasn't against his people. He had no intention of speaking badly about his people in making his appeal to Caesar, which is pretty amazing considering all the terrible things his own people had done to him over the years since he, has, since he had given his life to Jesus. But, but Paul made it clear that he just wanted to see and speak with these people who came to his home so that they would know that the reason he was bound with a chain, that, that he was imprisoned, was for the hope or the expectation of Israel. Check out what William MacDonald, a Bible commentator, said about this. He, he wrote, The hope of Israel refers to the fulfillment of the promises made to the Jewish patriarchs, especially the promise of the Messiah. Inherent in the fulfillment of these prophecy, uh, promises was the resurrection of the dead. I think given how we've seen Paul speak about the hope that he had in the past, you know, when we consider in Paul, in his writings even, talking about how he called himself a, a prisoner of the Lord, saying that his chains were in Christ, I think we can come to the conclusion that Paul ultimately is saying that the reason he's bound with the chain you, he, even though he's saying the hope of Israel, that really he's saying that Jesus is his hope. Jesus is the hope of the Jewish people. And you know what? Jesus is still the only hope for the Jewish people. He's the only hope for all people in every nation and tribe and language. He is the only hope because he is the only Savior. He's the only one who can save and forgive and and justify and reconcile sinful people to a righteous and holy God. He is the only way, truth, and life. And apart from Him, there is no hope of salvation or eternal life in the presence of God. That Jesus, the hope of Israel and all the world, wants to be our hope. And not just like, yeah, He's my hope for my, my eternity, my eternal dwelling, but what about our hope for right now? You know, sometimes I think we just kind of feel kind of like, well, I'm just going to, you know, just everything's going to be bad right now, and just kind of remain in almost like a state of hopelessness, while at the same time looking forward going, yeah, I've got this future hope, but what about how that future hope impacts our present hope? 
are we hopeful people now? And I'm not saying hopeful that the situation that I'm facing is going to change, hopeful that, you know, all suffering and trials are going to end. That's, that's more wishful thinking in some ways because we might be hoping for something that Jesus has actually promised us will be a part of our Christian journey. But what about the hope that, that, that's deep inside of us where it, where it holds us fixed in place? It's that anchor for the soul. Do we have an anchor for our soul right now? Not just looking ahead and going, yeah, of course, one day I've got heaven, but what about right now? Is our, is our soul anchored firmly in Christ to where when the storms and the trials and the suffering and the opposition and the persecution and all the different things that we go through in this life, when they happen, they don't blow us off course because we're fixed in place in Jesus because our hope is in him. You know, an anchor is under the water. It's unseen, but it has a very specific job that it does really well when the anchor works. And sometimes when we're in the storm, we can't see below the water. We can't see what Jesus is doing. But when Jesus is, is that anchor of our hope, we can, we can trust that he's doing what only he can do in our circumstances. He's doing what only he can do in the, in the inmost part of who we are in the struggles of our mind. Is the hope of Israel right now your and my hope. Because if he's not, that, that can be the case. That can be true for us. But maybe there's a realigning of hope that needs to happen for some of us even this morning. We, we know him. We have a personal relationship. But maybe, maybe that hope, you know, maybe that the anchor's been in the boat instead of being in the water, so to speak. Well, let's see how this initial meeting concluded in verses 21 and 22. Then they said to him, we neither receive letters from Judea concerning you, nor have any of the brethren who came reported or spoken any evil of you. But we desire to hear from you what you think, for concerning this sect, we know that it is spoken against everywhere. You know, you wonder if, when that happened, Paul's like, oh, shoot, I wish I would have just asked what they heard about me first before I started laying out my defense. Like, I didn't do anything against the nation. I, you know, he's like, oh, you know, you don't even know anything about me. You never heard anything bad. The, the response of these prominent influential Jews in Rome who had gathered was, hey, no one's wrote about you, Paul. No one who's come has given any sort of evil report about you either. But they did want to hear what Paul had to say because they knew that this sect, which was also known as the way, seen as sort of by the Jews an unlawful religion or break off of Judaism, they knew that it had been spoken against by the, by the Jews everywhere. And here Paul is being given an open door to share with these people again, yes, about Christianity, 
but more importantly about Jesus, the Messiah, who created the church, who created what we call uh, Christianity today, this, this movement that was greatly misunderstood by the Jewish people. So, moving on into verses 23 and 24, we're, we're now going to see that second meeting begin to take place where Paul's going to testify about Jesus. Verse 23, so when they had appointed him a day, many came to him at his lodging to whom he explained and solemnly testified of the kingdom of God, persuading them concerning Jesus from both the law of Moses and the prophets from morning till evening. And some were persuaded by the things which were spoken, and some disbelieved. What, what Paul is doing here is, is no different than what Paul had been doing for over 20 years leading up to this point. Paul would always first seek out other Jews wherever he went, usually going to a synagogue, but because he's under house arrest, he's like, I've got to get these guys to come to me. Like, I can't go to them, but they can come here. So, seeks out the Jews. He'd point them back to the law of Moses and the prophets. He'd use their own scriptures, which they saw as authoritative and inspired by God, and, and show how the Jewish scriptures all pointed forward to Jesus and, and would show from the scriptures how Jesus was the fulfillment of the law and the prophets. But, but notice that he explained and testified about the kingdom of God as he persuaded them concerning Jesus from the law and the prophets. I like what du David Gutzik said about this in reference to the kingdom of God here. He said, in speaking of the kingdom of God, Paul undoubtedly taught what Jesus taught. That in Jesus, God brought, about, uh, brought a spiritual kingdom that would take root in men's hearts before it took over the governments of this world. Most of the Jewish people of Jesus' day and of Paul's day looked for a political kingdom, not a spiritual kingdom. Isn't that interesting? We, we do the same thing still today. Even when it comes to the kingdom of God, we're looking for it in a physical way instead of the spiritual way. He goes on to say, in response to this remarkable day-long teaching from Paul, some believed and trusted Jesus. Others did not and disbelieved. He says, even the best teaching from the best apostle in the uh, apostle in the best circumstances could not persuade them not only did paul explain and solemnly testify of the kingdom of god here in verse 31 we see that for 2 years that that for the 2 years that paul was under house arrest and received all who came to him that he preached the kingdom of god so the preaching of the kingdom of God, Jesus being the king of the kingdom, was something prominent in Paul's preaching. And when we remember or maybe learn how amazing the kingdom of God is that we've been made a part of and how terrible the kingdom of this world is that we used to be a part of when we were under the power and dominion of Satan, it should cause us to be even more focused on Jesus and His kingdom, and even more passionate about proclaiming Jesus and His kingdom. 
Paul laid out all the scriptural and historical evidence, no doubt pointing many of the at least 300 prophecies that Jesus fulfilled regarding the first coming of the Messiah. And praise God, some were persuaded, some were convinced, some believed. But, but tragically, some disbelieved. And disbelieving means that they rejected the message that they heard about Jesus. You know, we have to understand that sometimes when people disbelieve, you know, sometimes people, it's not like a, a very firm rejection, like I just don't want anything to do with this. Sometimes it's just like they just use the excuse, like they, they put it off to another time. Like, I don't really want to talk about that right now. And, and even that is a rejection in the moment, may not be a, a full rejection in their heart, but it's a rejection of an opportunity to open their heart to Jesus. But sometimes when people disbelieve, when they reject Jesus, we have to understand that it's not because the scriptural and historical person and work and claims of Jesus are unbelievable to them, but because believing in Jesus means recognizing Jesus as king, as supreme and dethroning self or other things as king of our lives. And in pride, many just aren't willing to bow their knee and confess with their mouth that Jesus is Lord and submit to him as king and Lord and God. And you know, someone disbelieving also doesn't necessarily mean that we didn't do a good job of presenting the evidence about Jesus, or, or that we didn't faithfully proclaim the gospel message, but the fact that some disbelieved means that they had an opportunity to believe and in their free will chose not to believe. The problem then is not in the seed of the Word of God not being powerful enough to save someone's soul and transform their life. No, the problem is with the soil of the person's heart being hardened to where they didn't allow the seed of God's word, his gospel, to penetrate their hearts and bring about new life to, to cause them to be born again by the Spirit of God. You and I are not responsible to save someone's soul because only Jesus can do that. But we have been given the responsibility of being witnesses to Jesus in this world who share the gospel message of Jesus with people so that they can be saved and forgiven and justified. You know, I think sometimes we put so much emphasis on our effort in the saving process. And then we, we start to feel like, well, gosh, I just, I just I'm not gifted, obviously, I'm not an evangelist. You know, you know what I've found over the years as I've studied is in all the spiritual giftings that are listed for us, you know that evangelism is actually not one of the giftings that's listed as a spiritual gift. It's not. I, I, I think I'd be willing to go out on a limb here. 
that Timothy, companion of Paul, Paul writes to the Philippians, he's like, I have no one like Timothy. There's no one who has the same heart as me for other people like Timothy. That Timothy did not feel gifted as an evangelist. And I say that because Paul tells him, do the work of an evangelist. Timothy, do the work. Put in the work. You may not feel gifted. You may not feel very good at it. Just do it. Just open your mouth and share the gospel with people, Timothy. And I think we need to have a mindset shift when we think about evangelism and our place in evangelism efforts. Because if we just go, well, it's a gifting, and I'm not gifted. So it's reserved for other people that are... And I'm not saying that people can't be empowered by the Spirit of God in a moment to share the gospel, or maybe more bold, or maybe uh, just seem to operate a little bit more smoothly and striking up conversations that lead to the gospel than maybe other people do. But when we think, well, it's just, I just don't have that spiritual gift, then we might excuse ourselves more often than not in a moment to share about Jesus because we'll just pray, Lord, send somebody else their way. And Jesus is going, I sent you. I wonder how many times when we're praying, Lord, send people into the harvest. Harvest is grain. The laborers are few. And he's like, yeah, and I'm calling you. I've already called you. And I've already put people around you. And we see, gosh, it's, you know what? There's just a work to be done. It's not a gifting to be had. It's a work to be done. And then he has power from his spirit to be witnesses it's not relegated to just a select few. That promise of power to be a witness is for all of us in the body of Christ. But we need to be asking him for his power. That's a little aside there. But Paul took advantage of this opportunity. He shared the gospel. Some disbelieved. You and I have the same sorts of things happen to us. Don't get so discouraged by the disbelieving that we stop seeing that there are some who will believe and do believe. Let's see how this meeting ended here in verses 25 through 29. It says, that when they did not agree among themselves, this is the believing and disbelieving here in this group. So they are already having an argument here. It says, they departed after Paul had said one word. The Holy Spirit spoke rightly through Isaiah the prophet to our fathers saying, Go to this people and say, hearing you will hear and shall not understand, and seeing you will see and not perceive, for the hearts of this people have grown dull. Their ears are hard of hearing, and their eyes they have closed, lest they should see with their eyes and hear with their ears, lest they should understand with their hearts and turn, so that I should heal them." Therefore, Paul says, let it be known to you that the salvation of God has been sent to the Gentiles, and they will hear it. And when he had said these words, the Jews departed and had a great dispute among themselves. Paul had been seeking to explain, to testify about, to persuade these people regarding Jesus all day long. 
You see Paul's effort here. He's like, I'm going to I'm going to start, I'm going to go all the way back to the law of Moses, I'm going to start in the beginning, I'm going to try to show through the scriptures how Jesus was the fulfillment of, of, of all these prophecies pointing to, to our Messiah, Jesus is the Messiah, and he's spending all day, I can imagine Paul passionately pleading with these people, broken hearted over their lost state, and, and getting into the evening hours even. But part of what ended that meeting was what Paul shared once some had solidified themselves in their disbelief, where he quoted this passage from Isaiah chapter 6, a passage that Jesus himself actually quoted in Matthew and Mark and Luke's gospel accounts. But, but Paul pointing to what God spoke through the prophet Isaiah to the Jews of his day. This whole quote here was also an indictment of the disbelieving Jews who Paul was speaking to at that very moment. That they were no different than their forefathers who heard but didn't understand. Who saw but didn't perceive. Whose hearts had grown dull whose ears had become hard of hearing, and whose eyes they had closed. Do you notice that? They had closed. God wasn't closing their eyes. They closed their eyes. Just think about a kid. You ever seen, hopefully none of our kids have done it, but maybe they have in a fit of wild, sinful kidness. You're telling them something or you're seeing someone telling a child something and they plug their ears and they close their eyes and they start, la, 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 right? Like they, they don't want to hear something. Maybe it's a kid with their sibling. Like they're getting bugged. Maybe you've never seen that. Maybe it's a meme that you've seen online. But there are people who do this towards the Lord. This is the state spiritually of the hearts of many people. They're doing that same sort of thing. It's not that God's not willing to draw them to, us, to himself. It's not that God's not willing to heal them of their sin condition. It's an unwillingness to hear. It's an unwillingness to see. And it's an unwillingness to turn from sin to the one who can heal and forgive and save. It's a willful blindness. These things were true of the spiritual state of these people. They didn't want to see. They didn't want to hear. They didn't want to understand. And because of that, they didn't want to turn to the Lord so that he could heal them. And not only was this an indictment, uh, not only was this indictment something these disbelieving Jews didn't want to hear in their pride, the, the final straw of them just not wanting to listen anymore and they're going to leave, was, was Paul saying that though they were unwilling to hear and repent and turn to Jesus, that the salvation of God had been sent to the Gentiles and they would hear it. I just wonder with like some of the things that Paul did, if there was a moment in Paul's mind where he's like, I wonder how this is going to turn out right now. 
right? A couple of years earlier, he's at the steps, top steps of the Antonia Fortress in Jerusalem, right outside the temple, preaching to this large multitude of fellow Jews who had just beaten him, just tried to kill him. It's up on the steps. He's preaching to them. And then he mentions how Jesus said, I'm going to send you to the Gentiles. And it said at that word, they raised their voices and shouted, this man's not fit to live. So the last time that we see Paul telling disbelieving Jews that Jesus is going to send him to the Gentiles or the gospel is going to go to the Gentiles didn't turn out well. And now he's in a house. He's, he's even more vulnerable. He's got a soldier, one soldier with him. He goes, look, you might be rejecting, but there's other people who will hear. And the gospel is going to go to those who will hear it. Those in Judaism took great offense to the idea that their God would save Gentiles without them first proselytizing to Judaism and effectively becoming Jews just like them. And yet this is exactly what God had already been doing since Peter preached to Cornelius and all the Gentiles who had gathered at his home in Acts chapter 10. It was something that God was going to due to an even greater degree moving forward from that point through Paul and the rest of the early church's ministry and, and something we still see continuing today as many Jews are, are blinded to their Messiah. And, and oftentimes it's Gentiles who will hear the gospel and repent and place their faith in Jesus. Now having said that, in no way is God at all done with the Jewish people we do not ascribe to replacement theology at this church because it is not biblical. The church has not replaced Israel. You, you could try to build something aside from the word of God that's just not biblical, but you will not find it in scripture. And we are a Bible church here. He's not forsaken the Jewish people. He has not cast them aside. He still very much has a plan for the Jewish people. And though many Jewish people today reject Jesus as their Messiah, there are some who are coming to faith in Jesus, and, and we praise God for that. There are ministries specifically towards Jewish people, and it's so great. I love it. Now, the response here in Rome by these Jewish leaders was not violence towards Paul as has happened in the past, but it, but it did end with, a, with an argument as they left Paul's rented home. But in spite of some disbelieving, some rejecting Jesus, we see that Jesus was working in all these things. Fulfilling promises and getting Paul to Rome and Paul now having opportunities to witness. We see Jesus was working and creating ministry opportunities to the guards that Paul was chained to in this rented house to the Jewish leaders, to all who came to his home in those two years. And we see that Jesus was working in that in spite of his chains, his imprisonment, the gospel of Jesus was going out and saving people's 
souls and transforming lives with some of these Jewish leaders believing, but then in the gospel going out to the Gentiles in Rome who would hear and welcome the gospel message about Jesus, but also through the, the writings of Paul that happened in this two-year span of time. How many people have gotten saved over the last 2,000 years because they've read the, the letter to the Philippians or the Ephesians or to this man named Philemon or the, the, the letter of Colossians? And it's a blessing. Jesus is still working, still using Paul's imprisonment in ways today. And we will conclude our study of the book of Acts next week, and you can quote me on that. Lord willing, if I die during this week, Lord willing, if I don't, if we don't go to be with the Lord and Jesus raptures us, which we'd be totally great with, we will end Acts next week. Worship team, come back up. You know, I don't know for us, you know, maybe what the Lord might be speaking to us, you know, maybe how he might be wanting to challenge us or stretch us or encourage us or equip us for where he has us right now, who he's placed around us, put into our lives or, or for opportunities and people he's going to bring our way. Guys, let's be about and preach our King Jesus and his kingdom. We've, we've seen a shift in more recent years. I talk about this, not anything new for you guys. I've seen this shift, though, where even within the church, we have become so kingdom of man-centric. We just, we're so focused on what's going on here in this world that we, we, we preach a different gospel. We preach a gospel of morality and sometimes. So we want to see things change. We want to see things on a governmental change and become more in line with God's word. And those are good desires. Those are good things for us to want and to vote towards and to try to get bills passed. All those things are good things. But the kingdom of God always took place at a heart level. The, the kingdom of God and the, full, and the, the, the fullness of it, we're not even going to see in the millennial reign. I mean, we're, we're going to be raptured before that. <laughs> yes, we'll be ruling and reigning with Christ, but look, we're not looking for some physical kingdom to happen now. We're looking for the spiritual kingdom of God to take root in the hearts of individuals, and we need to be preaching about a different kingdom because people around us are seeing how jacked up the kingdom we live in is and the kingdoms of the world around us. Those things are not the answer for any person, and it doesn't matter what bills are passed. It doesn't matter who's put in office. Sinners are going to keep sinning, and society is going to keep getting worse in that respect because we're seeing the destructive influence of sin in society all around us and that society affecting on a, on, a, on a national level, not just in our country, but all over the world. So if we want to see things change, it's got to happen on a personal level, on a heart level. Paul preached to people's hearts. And yes, things 
were affected on a governmental level as, as saved people began to get into office and all those sorts of things. But we've got to preach the kingdom of God. We've got to preach about our king who is different than any other king, any other ruler. This is the time. Don't look for a gifting of evangelism. Pray for the power of God to be a witness. Just a mindset shift. We're not looking for some specific thing like, oh, this just other, you know, this other person, they're really good. Greg Laurie and Franklin Graham, like some of these other people, they're gifted, they've got the gift. Let's just get people to them. No, God's brought people to you. And he's brought people to me. And what they need is the kingdom of God. What they need is the king of the kingdom, it's Jesus. And you and I as citizens of that kingdom know how to give people Jesus because we have him. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you for your word this morning. God, we live in perilous times. God, we live in a, in a time where the godlessness just keeps getting increasingly more godless and wicked. Lord, we know the solution is you. Lord, we know what, what people need is you. And so, Lord, in our homes, in our neighborhoods, in our workplaces, Lord, help us to see the harvest field that's all around us, maybe even in our own home. Maybe it's our kids who don't even know you. Maybe it's a spouse. The Lord, we wouldn't despise or be blind to those local ministry opportunities that you've already given us. The people in our homes, the people in our neighborhoods, the people in our workplaces. Lord God, we ask for boldness. God, we ask for the power of your spirit, Lord, to be witnesses to Jesus in this world. Lord, help us to not excuse ourselves from opportunities, Lord, that you've actually, you positioned us uniquely to be the minister to those that you've put in our lives. And Lord, yes, some will disbelieve but Lord, help us to not be so discouraged or put off by the disbelieving, the, the gospel rejecting, that Lord, we, we miss how there's others who will hear. Lord, send us to those who will hear. And Lord, to those who disbelieve, Lord, we pray for a softening of hearts. Lord, we pray for that convicting work of your spirit. Lord, to draw people out of a position of pride and disbelief to a place of believing, a place of humility before you. Lord, so that those who don't know you would repent and, and be healed, would turn to you and find spiritual healing, Lord. Their sins being forgiven, their souls being saved. Lord, we need you. God, you know our own inadequacies our own weaknesses. 
Lord, our personalities, Lord, some are introverts, some are extroverts, and yet, Lord, you've called all of us to be witnesses. Lord, I pray that we would see ministry happen to an even greater, greater degree from homes moving forward. Lord, that we would have open hearts, open doors, welcoming people in, loving people with your love, sharing your gospel, reasoning with people from the scriptures, Lord, and being reasonable in our reasoning. Lord God, we need you. We're thankful, Lord, that we have you. But Lord, we pray that you would have more of us. Lord, that more of us would be submitted to you. If there's anybody here this morning and you don't just first have a personal saving relationship with Jesus, I want to give you an opportunity this morning to open your heart. Maybe you've been dull of heart. Maybe you've been hard of hearing. Your eyes have been closed. And this morning, the call of Jesus has become clear. And he's saying, I want you. I love you. I want to save you. I want to forgive you. If that's you this morning, I'd love to pray for you. Would you just stand where you're at? If that's anybody in here this morning. Maybe there's some even who would listen to this or are joining online and, and that's them this morning. I just encourage whoever that might be that in your own heart you would just say, Jesus, I'm a sinner. Jesus, I need, I need your forgiveness. Jesus, would you save me? Would you forgive me? Would you give me your righteousness? Would you seal me with your Holy Spirit? Would you make me a new creation in Christ Jesus? Where all the old things would pass away and all things would become new. You would just say, Jesus, I, I believe that you died for me and that you rose from the grave. Jesus, be my Savior, my King, my God, my Lord, my friend. And would you help me to live for you by the power of your Spirit? Just encourage you, if you've done that today, if you've prayed that prayer, meant it from your heart, the Bible says you will be saved. Lord, for those of us who know you, this morning, God, we pray for just a stirring of hearts. Lord, for an inward work of revival by your spirit inside of us. God, maybe you're reviving those areas that have become complacent and dull. Maybe we've become dull of hearing to your voice, even as those who know you. God, that we would live passionately for you. That we would love you and love others. And God, be about your kingdom and your commission. God, we're thankful for you, thankful for this time and your word. Lord, as we 
continue singing these songs of praise, Lord, as we take of the communion elements, Lord, as the prayer team is available to pray with people. God, I pray that you continue to move in our midst. We thank you, Father, in Jesus' name, amen.